This episode is brought to you by Serendipitous Tours. Are you tired of urban tour guides that focus exclusively on the same basic world-renowned places of interest in a destination metropolis? Have you ever longed to discover the secret city that's only experienced from the point of view of a native? Well, on your next vacation, take a serendipitous tour. When you install their app, it instantly seeks out all your navigation apps and infects them with its certified, safe, patented viral worm technology. Then, no matter your destination, causes them to always route you through the most interesting areas of the city based on news articles, crime rates, and distance from law enforcement precincts. Use Serendipitous Tours and every day can be the start of an adventure that will make you the center of your next cocktail party. And when you arrive at the gathering point for your tour, just ask any of the friendly, engaging people leaning against a wall if they're your tour guide today. You can bet that one of them will be looking forward to showing you around, inside, and through the alleyways of their fair city. And use the promo code RERED to receive, free of charge, your own life-saving emergency whistle with the name of your next holiday term, uh, objective, blazoned on the side. You'll be glad you did. So thank you, Serendipitous Tours, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning! The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We've read these books many times, and we assume you have too, or at least plan to. Besides, we're here to understand them, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello. How are you, sir? I am good. Good. I'm good. And you want to know why? Why? Because we have corrections. Uh, we've been wrong, and now we get to make it right. <laughs> That's that right. Is, that is a good thing. Every error yeah. you make is an opportunity simply to learn and correct yourself. Yes, shrive us, listeners. Shrive us. <laughs> hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. So, Neil Smith. Neil at the cross pointed out, he says, well, let's just get straight to it. He says, you suggest that Severian might have sent Dorcas into the Vincula without him, but he explicitly did not. He said, I had invited Dorcas to go with me on the next day when I made an inspection of the subterranean parts of the Vincula. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. She And it would be, I mean, she wouldn't go alone. Yeah. Alone. I, yeah. I, I, I think I got, I've, don't know exactly where I got the idea, but I got the idea that she was having separate duties in the Vincula, and I just assumed she was there with, you know, jailers. But he says, uh, I do agree with you that although they walked together, they visited completely separate places experientially. Mm -hmm. She would have been focused on the people and the horrible conditions. Severian had been used to you know, the mansion, and in his own way, he would have paid attention to chains and passages. Yep. And that's a good point. That's, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Her experience of it would have been totally different from his, yeah. of course. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, also um, on email, Earl Fontenelle 
Um, <laughs> Our Schwepp man, the man <laughs> who he is Schwepp, basically. Whether or not his real name that is, an, yeah, an please, esoteric... Lord, let that be his real name. <laughs> <laughs> it's an esoteric secret, I'm sure. Whether or not it is true. Well, he he sweetens this his correction to ask whether anyone has discussed William Hope Hogson and his shadow, so to speak, over the Book of the New Sun. And he says, if no one's talking about this, let me tell you, there's lots there. I'd love and to hear it, Earl. Honestly, it's interesting that he said that because somebody just dug up an old thread on Facebook that I had of just trying to list out all the dying earth stories. And yeah, William Hope Hodgins, he's Nightland is going to be one of the first top things because Vance pretty much straight out says he was kind of copying some of the ideas from Nightland. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I had accidentally put the, the, uh, Oh shoot. What's his name? It's not, is it Stoddard? I forget the guy who rewrote it in sort of modern English or something. Oh, yeah, I put yeah. him as the author instead of, uh, Hodgson. So yeah. Yeah. So people absolutely have, whether or not, and, and this is something I think I might have emailed back to him, but I said, I don't know of anyone who's gone sort of like piece by piece through the nightland to look for individual things that are there. But he makes a couple points about how there are certain things that are actually way more like the nightland than Vance. And I think he's I think he's right. So they're actually I think there's a lot of work to be done there of, you know, what did Wolf actually maybe take from Hodgson rather than Vance intentionally yeah, or not? I, mm. there's, there's a lot of good stuff to be similarities to be found there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. So let's get on to his correction. I had said that the title of the book of Genesis, that the first words of the book is the title uh, Genesis in the beginning, but that's not exactly true. Earl informs us that although, you know, the title in Hebrew, is those first words. Uh, Genesis is the Greek title, and it means creation. So he says, so it's not the first words of the book thing. In this case, it's a thematic title. Yeah. Well done, Earl Fontenelle. Yep. And he would know since his specialty is ancient languages, a lot of ancient text stuff. And if you're doing ancient text stuff, you know the Bible and the text very well. So yeah. Yep. Cool. Also, just really cool that Mr. Schwepp is listening to us. <laughs> hey, hey, Earl. Let's see. Um, also on email, uh, Eponymous. Uh, this listener reached out to us to chide us for refusing to go big on our discussion of Marin. <laughs> and in short, in our super spoiler discussion that we, uh, we let listeners skip over, uh, there were hints that Marin had a high degree of connectivity, similarity with a certain type of non-human in the Book of the Short Sun. And it yeah. would be very difficult to address their corrections without blotting out a huge portion of these comments sections to discuss it. So instead, instead, I've posted the contents of the email to the subreddit, to the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit. Uh, honestly, on reflection, Craig, we should have given this possibility more time. So I encourage you all to go to Reddit, go to the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit, search for the title Marin as Inhuma. A lot of really good points there. I'm not convinced for a variety of reasons, but it's a theory with a lot of good citations. It makes me think of a certain uh, thread of posts I did on the Earth list regarding uh, Silk and uh, his connection to uh, being to a particular chem. So. Um, Very cool. So, which, in case, I also, I don't believe that either now, 
but I look back on it and I say, you know, the evidence is all there. <laughs> so, so I, f- I feel that way about eponymous uh, theory, but mm-hmm. still, you know, maybe, maybe, I mean, after we hash it out, I may change my mind. So let's see what else we got, Craig. Um, oh, we, so we changed the introduction a little tiny bit yep. uh, when we started this new volume. I mean, you know, we've been calling the Book of the New Sun a nearly 40-year-old book, and now it's a 40-year-old book. 40-year-old book. But Brian Donahue and uh, Stephen Frug feel a loss that we, as Brian put it, abandoned the literary artifice of saying we're abandoning the literary artifice of pretending (laughs) listeners haven't read the book. (laughs) I Yeah, that was me. I kind of just, the more I'd hear it, the more I... I just didn't like the phrasing. Plus, it, it something about it just seemed also slightly pointed, being like, "Oh, other people pretend, and but we're not." Pretending. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it just seems rude. But also, I just also didn't like the phrasing. I just it felt, especially coming out of my mouth, because I think I was the one that that mm-hmm. said it, and I was like, it "Just doesn't." I I wouldn't say that, so I don't know why. But yep, so that's why. Well, yeah, well, frankly, so it goes. I- Change is good. <laughs> Change is good. It is. It is. And frankly, I was stunned that listeners. Uh, even from Noticed. the very beginning, are still <laughs> listening to the intros. <laughs> I mean, we still need a, a warning at the start in case someone wary listener checks out the most recent episode. But I figured, you know, everyone was listening to the ad and skipping right to, hi, Craig. So, yep. But I do get it. I mean, there are those podcasts where they have longer introductions and you kind of listen to them. Just it's like mm-hmm. the, the familiarity washes over you. So sorry if we shook that up just a little bit. But we had to <laughs> well, clean some things up, too. There were parts that were messy and yeah, they bug me because I'm the one that has to hear it countless, countless times <laughs> over and editing, over editing, again. Editing yeah. It. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, anyway, it just shows what I know about the podcast game, which is not much. <laughs> Let's see the ta- chapter title of the cleansing. Uh, Daniel Baradas says, my thought on why the last chapter of Claw is called the cleansing. Notice how the next chapter, the first of sort of the lictor, starts with Dorcas washing her hair while trying to get rid of the smell of the prison, a literal cleansing of Severian's dirty job. So maybe that chapter title is a reference to Apupunchao as the cleansed incarnation of Severian, the bringer of life versus the bringer of death. I like those connections. Like, I think those are smart. And I'm I'm glad you pointed that out and brought that kind of full circle because I think you're right. I feel like there has to be some intentional connection the thematically the way you pointed out yeah i think that's all definitely there um yeah consider yeah. that these and, volumes the the divisions between them are purely artificial yep i mean uh, not, when i say purely artificial, uh, wolf did in intend for the first two volumes to be two volumes and yep. for them to end and begin and end there and there's a and there's a self-evident structure in them but still you know when he's going through all this the he's he's First, next chapter is the cleansing, and then then following on that is the the first one of sword. Yep, and you know one thing I always tell my students too is yeah, even if Wolf wasn't sitting there consciously saying, okay, now I need her to be cleaning something in mm-hmm. her hair that is symbolically important to connect to something else. The way symbols and the way the way the logic of these things work, you know, it's subconscious too. It's it's all working there. Mm-hmm. That's part of what makes him a good writer. that that stuff is working whether or not he's even fully intention intentional about it or not but because it works because you can make meaning out of it it's cool and you can find those things and that makes it even more fun and and thoughtful so yeah i like it like it a lot uh let's see um 
we uh, we kind of struggled over Dorcas saying just me after to, in answer to Severian's mm-hmm. long, long winded, uh, obnoxious questions. And several listeners, I think, had the correct answer on this. Uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, First Person Jugular on Reddit, Neil Smith on Reddit, Tom Welshkit on Facebook, uh, and others, I, I just don't remember right now. They all pointed out that the puzzle on Dorcas saying just me in chapter one is not a puzzle at all. Severian is being a jerk, and he says to Dorcas, you've never lost anyone, have you? And then he says a bunch of other things, and Dorcas replies, just me. And so uh, Neil Smith put it on Reddit. My thoughts on Dorcas's line, only myself, is that I think you're missing the straightforward reading. Severian is talking at her and not pausing to let her answer, like many people would in that position. She's still focused on the first sentence. You haven't lost anyone, have you? Non-stop talking. And then she says, only myself. She feels lost as well as the fact that she has lost all her past herself. Mm. Not only is this a plausible reaction, it also invites Severian and us, the audience, to think about her state of mind and feelings of loss here. Let us not be as oblivious as Severian is yep. to it. No, yeah. I think that's good. no, I think that's fair, though. I like that. I like that reading of that. I think yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Yep. Um, man skin, doe skin. Uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky on Blue Sky, he says, regarding Doeskin, maybe Severian told Squeamish Dorcas that it is Doeskin, and when she made the pouch and at the scene and in her is in her company, so he's remembering what he would have referred to it as at the time, maybe. Yeah, that's pretty good. Of course, Adrian also adds, my personal bet is that it's authorial error, knowing how easy it is to miss these things. Mm-hmm. Well, he would know, yeah. Um, Neil Smith, it takes a similar direction. He says, man skin versus doe skin has always been one of those inconsistencies that I want to find meaning in that may not be there. The sheath of Terminus S is man skin and Severian hasn't been afraid to say so. The most likely, though least interesting explanation is that it got mixed up later with the pouch for the claw and was just missed in proofreading and editing, which yeah. is probably not done on a word processor with a good search function. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't then for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, that's in the end, that's probably the most likely thing that happened, but um, yeah, but we should still push. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he attributes to me a theory that is not mine. My, I, I, I suggested that maybe, Severian is saying doe skin simply because it makes him feel uncomfortable to think of of Dorcas sewing together, uh, you know, a man skin pouch. Uh, his the theory that he attributes to me is that doe skin is the female for man skin rather than deer skin, which is intended as background, and, and that's a pretty cool explanation all on its own, though. That is kind of cool. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I I certainly have never heard that or something like it before, but. Yeah, it is kind of cool. Uh, but he says the two uses are too far apart to make a good window dressing for setting. Perhaps it is, though, just trying to show that even human skin is common enough material to use and mm-hmm. no one thinks much of it. Yeah. Yeah. If that's what he wanted, like if if he was just going to use it all the time. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Possibly even with the Terminus Est uh, pouch as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first person jugular uh, on Reddit says, as far as the doe skin, man skin issue, I see that as a signal that his past is in continuous flux due to manipulation by multiple time-traveling parties, and the effects thereof are constantly rippling forward in time. That's kind of a variation on 
uh, my, uh, his soul is stretched between two uh, consciousness, right? I two, think two universes. And I feel like if you are going to take the doe skin, man skin thing as intentional, that's a good way to go for it. It just also seems like there ought to be way more of that stuff. Like if mm -hmm. Wolf is going to put that detail in there, it's a small one that kind of happens once. Like, why didn't it go back and forth and change and become more obvious? Um, it would have been a I can't even imagine be, how difficult it'd be that crazy would be. mess. Yeah. Um, I like, I mean, I like the implication got to admit given given the, some of the possibilities we have about how much is changing in severian's life mm -hmm. I, i'll put it this way what he says i like it a lot i find it less likely but i still like it <laughs> yeah but i still like it a lot yeah it, it's a sort of model it's it's a variation on mandis's uh first severian where he's modifying his own timeline and it's being erased behind him yeah in his own past it's not the same but it is very similar yep, yep. that was in reddit you can find that on the episode for that that he has a lot to say it's pretty cool um marcus uh govea says if it's intentional i agree we should expect some sort of clue elsewhere i did a quick search of shadow and claw for references of deer doe buck skin and leather and there isn't much but the two patches just pop out first the chapter in terminus s where severian received the sword and he comments that the sheath is sable manskin soft as glove le leather so maybe manskin is just typical of the guild. Yeah, I agree, by the way, that manskin among the torturers and carnifixes does seem to be not an outlandish material. Um, and maybe it's like that for other people as well. And But uh, Marcus goes on. He says, later in the chapter, Dorcas, also in shadow, the old man on the skiff, Dorcas's husband, says of the corpse in the garden, no way of telling how long they've been dead, for the water here pickles them. You'll hear it said it turns their skin to leather, and so it does. But don't think of the sole of your boot when you hear it. More like a woman's glove. So gloves again, if, if that means much, he says. And the other passages are less telling. Uh, the mirror book, the autark shows him, in which he insists is animal skin. But Severian thinks it reminds him of a corpse. Maybe the next best one. And Vodalus's kidnappers at the start of Claw wear deerskin. He also wonders if Bohr has ever mentions human skin as material. And I don't. I, I did a search. I didn't see anything uh, for my casual search. Um, Bellero2 on Reddit says, regarding the doe skin, man skin pouch, could the claw itself have affected the change from animal material to a higher, more evolved material? I, I feel like we might have proposed that. But I thought we did. It seems like an obvious one. That you, you know, maybe I'm thinking of a listener comment. My issue with that is that Severian ought to have noted that change in in that case, the way he did with the wine, that when it was changed from water. Yeah. Like, I thought this pouch was dough skin, something like that. Yeah. It seems like the kind of thing, too, that it's not about life. It's not about life, right? It's It would be changing material but what mm -hmm. other places apart from the water and wine bit is it it brings things to life so mm -hmm. without it i mean it just seems weird to me that it would take one kind of skin and turn it into a different kind of skin when every other time it's about bringing things back yeah so yeah that's, yeah. that's my one concern so hey, look, we tried. I don't know. <laughs> Probably it's never going to be settled and it might well be authorial uh, error, although it seems like an impossible error. I, I more Every time I think, I think about, you know, me reviewing my stuff and I, I just don't understand how I could see 
he, he did three drafts on it. I just, how he could read doe skin three times, having made that switch mentally later on in the book and not have corrected it. It just seems yeah. crazy. I, there's no good, there's no good answer to this. I think at least not yet, maybe someday. Let's see. Uh, Matt Puzz on Facebook. He says, I just want to pop in and say, finish the most recent episode on a long trip home for the holidays from Madison, Wisconsin to Detroit, Michigan. And I really enjoyed the little Murakami tangent. I cool. wanted to add that Murakami has been a staple of my personal library for some time. And he was the first author to show me that at the novel's end, closure doesn't always come and you shouldn't always expect it. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Some of his stuff, there's a lot in a Murakami novel that doesn't get explained. Very obviously, <laughs> intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Brent Dunn. I came to Murakami when I started running. I kept hearing people talk about how amazing Murakami's uh, nonfiction book about running was. And I didn't know he was a oh, novelist. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I figured he was some elite athlete. <laughs> yeah, I know he's big into running and wrote a book about his procedures and why he does it. And, yeah, he and... says, says what? I guess the title is uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. Yep, I think that's right. And it's, yeah, it's it's supposed to be something really good, but I haven't read it, so I can't say. I'm also not a runner, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I wouldn't be the best to evaluate things. I would love to be a runner. I would. I've I've tried many times, but ever since my twenties, I get crippling tendonitis, and mm. then I have to hobble around for a few months, and then I, I think, should I try again? <laughs> I get tired. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> you might want to see a doctor. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, Neil Smith liked your call between the Severian's attraction to the ring and Gollum with the one ring. Mm. Yeah, he says it, it's a very obvious homage and he seldom does obvious. So I have to ask, what is he drawing our attention away from with his Lord of the Rings reference? What mm. I find is this mention of the claw glowing at night for no obvious reason mentioned barely in passing while the references are taking our attention. Huh? Yeah, that's a good point. Why is it glowing? I mean, I, I have my own reasons for why it glows. So you guys are on your own. Um, I'll have to go back and look. Cause yeah, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of it, but okay. Fair enough to keep in mind. All right. So yeah. if he's being obvious about something, then maybe something else is hidden. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's see. On Twitter, uh, Father Brendan LaRoche, uh, he has something to say about the Jupari. He says, I just listened to your Agilis episode, and I have some thoughts on the symbol Agia draws, or at least Severian's, Severian's thoughts on it. He says, I think it's true that the symbol isn't a Jupari, but I think it makes sense that Severian thought it was. Your in-depth dive into the meaning of the Jupari raises some thoughts. So Jupari is the sun's emissary and teaches the men of the tribe to do sacred dances, which involves masks and flute. And this certainly connects to the torturers living in the Madison Tower and doing the sword dance on Holy Catherine Day. But Jupari also, on behalf of the sun, took the sacred function of performing these rituals away from the women and gave it to the men. And remember, the torturers have no women in their guild. Any girl children they acquire is given to the witches. Why? Because the Autarch Imar, all, the almost just decreed it. 
In the book of the new sun, the autarchs are potential bringers of the new sun who will bring the white fountain and heal Earth's sun. The bringer of the new sun has access to the power of the white fountain to work wonders. This makes the autarchs potential emissaries of the sun. And so, Jupari, as the sun's emissary who took the sacred functions from the women and gave it to the men, is potentially a type for Imar the Almost Just, the autarch. Mm. Who made the torturers a guild of solely men? Yeah, I like that. That's not That's bad. Very interesting. There's a lot yeah. there. Okay, cool. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So I'm I'm trying to think about how it gets back to her. It doesn't a, get back what, to her. It does. Um, it doesn't tell her what what the heck is she doing. I have I have I, my theory on my beliefs about Ajia are evolving, and I think maybe when we get to um, the, the magicians out there in the woods, mm -hmm. it's going to come up again. And um, I think there's going to be some, yeah, that's, I, I didn't think there was much there and then, but now more and more, I think there is something about, since that's the one place where it seems to me, yeah, that her little sorcery thing comes back in a certain way. Right. Cause you get the, you, at the very least, you get the idol right there with the, the messed up. Yeah. Head also, head. also they, I think, I believe they also carry those little claws. Um, that she hits Severian with. Oh, okay. Of course, she has so many weapons, but still, still, still. That if that's a clear yeah. connection, yeah. Okay. Let's see. Um, Nathan Pocock on Facebook. He pitched a theory that at Severian's elevation feast, he might have been fed someone, although he can't say who. He notes that Severian ate roasted meats at the party as well as drinks. He notes that Severian feels sick and wanted to throw up at Vodalus's ceremony after eating the Alzabo and roasted meats combination. And after the elevation feast, he has a similar type of dreamy sickness hallucination and does indeed throw up. Maybe this blunts the effects of the Alzabo consumption. The meats at the Vodalus feast are directly compared to the ones at Holy Catherine's feast. Also, Zverian uh, hears what he thinks is Triskley padding outside the door, and he sees Triskley as a literary reference to the Alzabo. Zverian's dream when Triskley is healing in the basement where Triskley speaks to him, he says, this screams to me Alzabo. Well, you know, Nathan, that is what I call a Curiositas Earthus. Curiositas Earthus. That is swinging for the fences, so... Good job. Yeah, but he does make a point. Like if we look at the nausea images and, and that it happens right after eating meat. Huh. Okay. Now I'm curious. Like, yeah. did he eat Triskly? <laughs> like, was that, was that part of the meat? Like they just found, found some dog. I mean, this is how Triskly shows up again. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, um, that's a good point. Um, of course, the feast and of uh, Holy Catherine and the feast of Thecla, uh, the feast of Holy Catherine, uh, Catherine comes up in chapter 11. Uh, Thecla's Feast, I think, is in chapter 12 of Claw. I mean, there's definitely direct parallels mm -hmm. for these things. Uh, he does say, I can't place who Severian might have consumed at the feast. He says, maybe his mother. But I'm not sure, you know, what that would solve for the plot. Well, that's true for so many things, actually, for the theory. But yeah, and uh, it's also the, the difficulty is how obvious it is to Severian that he's remembering something different. So mm -hmm. I think the thing to do in the text would then be look at that and be like, are there things that start to happen? I mean, he does have those hallucinations. Are those hallucinations memories of things mm -hmm. that happened 
to whoever he's thinking of or whoever he's eaten, you know, that I don't know, but that's, and then he just misunderstands it and can't place right. that later. So maybe could be, yeah. and maybe, I mean, you could even say too, like he, he of course doesn't have the claw then. So maybe something about that means that when he eats it, he just has the vaguest impressions of those memories. And mm-hmm. it's only after he has the claw that it becomes something really powerful in him but the autarchs can apparently do it yeah so there's i don't know i don't know but i i like the possibility though that's not i honestly hadn't ever thought of that before so i'm intrigued well i suppose he thinks that uh maybe severian ate his mother because uh you know he had severian had this sense of that the maid in the ceremony was in his room Mm -hmm. well nathan if this theory is true surely the person severian ate is malrubius because he peeks his head into the room and somehow Malrubius maybe is eaten Severian's mother. Well, that's the direction I would end up going with if this were my theory. So, um, Old business. Uh, Petrified Pigs on Reddit <laughs> thinks we should have used Dolly Parton's Jolene for the Jolenta chapter. Someone else mentioned how the description of Jolene in the song matches mm-hmm. Jolenta. Yeah. And I agree. It's it's pretty uncanny. So, uh, green eyes, red hair, all that. Um, Clark Ashton Smith, uh, ending bigly on Twitter says, do you know if anyone has gone into depth on Clark Ashton Smith's influence on Wolf? I just finished his story, the eternal world, which involves entities being taken out of status and the passage, uh, really stood out. I, not the only time I've noticed something like this. Um, actually, you know, Wolf, one, wrote an introduction to a Clark mm-hmm. Ashton Smith collection. Yep. Also, uh, Wolf pulled a lot of references in his uh, A Borrowed Man to Clark Ashton Smith, even quoting a, a, a particular poem by Clark Ashton Smith. It's possible that the protagonist in that is uh, a name that's inspired by Clark Ashton Smith. His, um, he's earned a Smith with an E and Clark Ashton Smith. So uh, E-A versus C-A Smith. So yeah, um, lots to work there. If someone, if I really look forward to ending Bigly, uh, dig deep into Clark Ashton Smith so I can see it. Yeah, I can't point to something off the bat that is like a nice long Reddit essay or anything like that. So I think... Ending bigly, yeah, I think you are volunteered. To do that <laughs> well done. That's, I hate it when I suggest something and they say, we're going to put you in charge. Today. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's how it happens. Um, oh, someone on uh, on Twitter brought up the word asymptotically. Uh, it means uh, like two lines that are not parallel, but are converging at an irrational ratio. So they're forever getting closer, but not actually crossing. Now, is the point out that that felt like a, a good word for a lot of that goes on in Wolf's fiction, trying to oh, figure out yeah. what's going on at the plot level. No, I absolutely. I was like, is that just a word that you liked? <laughs> Somebody, I was like, did, did, did Wolf use it? I don't know. But you're absolutely right. No, that is totally... Yeah, that is totally a just great... Just keep going Wolf, around and around, rereading word. it. Say, ah, maybe, maybe this, maybe this, yeah. Uh, let's see. Pedro Nobre reached out to us by email. He says, I stumbled into a beautiful quote by Nicolas Gomez Davila. It reminded me immediately of rereading Wolf. Hmm. He sent us the quote in Spanish, but I'll just deliver a rough translation. 
tradition, propaganda, chance, or advice, choose our readings. We only choose what we read. In other words, these things, tradition, propaganda, chance, advice, these all tell us, these all choose how we read, how we read, but what we, what we read, that's our choice. Yep. Um, Bill Maddox on Facebook, he says, on the Cumaean, I think James's creepy crawly musings in the summary episode are probably on the right track. I suspect that the snake thing wrapped around the wand in the throat is the actual Cumaean, and the human seeming body she inhabits is just a vessel or vehicle, kind of like uh, the little alien riding inside the nice old man's head in Men in Black, only 500% creepier. As she swallows the wand, in order to allow her true body to physically touch the wand and, you know, do whatever it is the wand does. That seems very, very plausible. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian Donahue, again on Facebook, he offers a thematic confirmation of my assertion that in the timeline of the first two volumes, it's 29 days from Severian's elevation to the Stone Town. He notes that it is exactly 29 days from the uh, St. Catherine's Feast Day on November 25th to Christmas Eve. He says, December 25th date for Christmas is originally derived from the March 25th date, marking the conception, the Annunciation, or, or the Evangelismo. But it quickly became associated with the winter solstice. It's associated with the Feast of the Epiphany or the Theophany, a feast centered around God manifesting himself, especially the episodes of the Magi, hence the Three Kings Day name and the emphasis in the West. The wedding of Cana and the baptism in the Jordan, liturgically, this manifestation describes the terms of light coming into the world. Now, as correlated with the winter solstice, Christ is born into the world at the darkest point, traditionally in the middle of the night, which is alluded to in the Wisdom of Solomon 18.15. From the moment of his coming into the darkest point, he brings light. His birth is a kind of dawn for the world, and many Advent hymns and texts refer to the coming of Christ as this sun dawning upon the world. And he recommends James McMillian's Advent, Advent choral piece, O Radiant Dawn. John the Baptist, whose nativity is marked six months earlier on June 24th, is in turn associated with the summer solstice. And John says of himself and Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. The sunlight decreases starting at his birth and increases with Christ's birth. And then the cycle recurs. Christmas Eve in particular is associated with the temporary triumph of dark forces. This survives in our culture a little bit in the idea of Christmas Eve as a time of scary ghost stories or of spirits haunting old British misers. It's the last hurrah of evil spirits before Christ comes and drives them out or exercises them with his light. This is all to say Christmas Eve is a day associated traditionally with utter darkness and evil spirits. Christmas itself is a feast that represents literally the coming of the new sun in a Christian sense and the increase and victory of that sun. In conclusion, he says that Christmas corresponds directly to the theme of Apoponchow as the head of the day, the day spring on high that dawns upon us, as well as involvement of the creepy, the ghostly, and the presence of evil spirits. And so, yeah, Merry Christmas on that. I like that. And that is a good way to uh, have 
we don't have a separate Christmas episode, but <laughs> we we do have that. So yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's kind of what you get for Christmas this year. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your plum pudding. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The only other thing I would think is I do like connecting Apu Punchau to Christmas just because that people think oh, pre-Christian religion or something like that is certainly not going to be connected with Christmas. But this that connection talks about some kind of um, you know, truer meaning behind the specific traditions that uh, would be, you know, the more eternal version of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I kind of like that. Yeah, beautiful. You keep the crooks and charlatans in business, babe. But do you appreciate your It is time to thank our new patrons. We have quite a number since last time. Uh, five new journeymen. We have John Whaling, Sean Gavin, Ian Dickman, Craig LaRock, kind of like that name, uh, and also Hinch55, who went ahead and paid for the whole year, which is something you can do if you don't want to have the irritating little monthly charges. You can just do that. But still, by the way, even if you just for over two bucks just for one month you can still get everything on there but uh, you just get access over the the whole thing each month with all the new bonuses um speaking of bonuses the bonus this episode is a short story that you're not gonna find in either of the two new collections this is one that was actually published in wolf's texas a&m newspaper or literary magazine kind of hard to tell exactly which one um but hasn't been recollected even though you can find it online but we go through that uh, but we do also have one new master patron who goes simply by the name Farnbone. I'm rather intrigued by that name, and but I like it. But yep, so at the master level, that's $5 a month. That gets you the tag and a few extra little goodies here and there. But please check us out on patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. All right, Craig. Well, let's, um, let's stretch our legs a little bit. Let's get out of this little dungeon of ours and see the world yeah we didn't talk about running just now so but we're not <laughs> going to be running and taking long long yes. leisurely walks here that's right as we like to do get an ice cream or something <laughs> chapter two upon the cataract so here we are by my calculation 86 days from the feast of holy catherine mm-hmm. three moon cycles and one day since the events at the Stone Town. Okay. So this is the next morning after Severian's and Dorcas's fight uh, about the Vincula. Yes, indeed. Not a lot happens in this chapter, Craig. But, and by a lot, you mean anything. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Severian's just going to go walking. Yep. We're, we're going to get something that we don't get a lot, which is some exposition about the about the place we're in. Yep. And it's it seems like that's good we're in a new place he's got to introduce it somehow so yeah but he doesn't he's never worried about that in the past true I mean, you get uh, it, it's really always at, at like a an ant's eye view for everything he does he walks true. into to the nest as he doesn't know he he's grown up in the in the mansion it's it's very hard to get an idea of the layout of anything but yeah. here it's all very very careful he's it's like he's he's doubling up as the thrax tour guide so you're gonna do a walking tour of thrax pretty much yeah that's what we get so yeah but i would say that this chapter is like i said solid with exposition just as much as we're ever going to get in this novel it's all about topography the people of thrax but it, it starts 
with Dorcas and it ends with Dorcas. Yep. And the mill part reveals just how dense Severian is to what she's going through. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to kind of overall describe what's going on here. Because in the larger sense of New Sun, do we need to know this much about Thrax in order to see how he escapes later? No, we don't. Like, it's it's not really particularly enlightening about Nessus culture. I mean, there's a little bit we get. He sets up some stuff about the autochthons and the zoanthropes that show up later on. Um, and so, yeah, he does make use of some of it, but does it need a whole chapter? No. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. The fact that it it is bookended by Dorcas, that's sort of a big point of what's going on here. Right. Is that, yeah, he's he's a little confused. In fact, even, we'll talk about this later, but he even misrecognizes Dorcas for a second. At the yeah, end, right? yeah. So, yeah, so that's, it's all all working towards that i feel like that that takeaway yeah well to be fair she doesn't cut the same profile anymore because the first thing she does in the morning is cut off all her hair it's true yeah and i don't mean just like a soft bob or something i mean she cut it all off yeah super short he doesn't they don't have electric razors i guess i don't know but it would be something they probably have scissors maybe yep uh yeah severian says that she looks like a boy almost. Mm-hmm. I guess she couldn't get the smell of the vincula out of her hair to her satisfaction. I remember they fought about Severian's new job. It's cruelty. It's massiveness, just the wrongness of it all. And she puts some kind of circlet around her head. And because it is what she does, she puts a white peony in the circlet band. Peonies are the state flower of Indiana. And in- so I live in Indiana and I did not know that. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> and in China, they are the queen of flowers. Supposedly, white peonies represent shame. Uh, Mantis's chapter guide says that they also represent anger, but you might wear them to signal, like, I'm sorry. She could wear it to signal, I'm ashamed of you, Severian. Yeah. Or I'm ashamed to be a part of all this. Yeah. And that makes sense. That makes uh-huh. sense. As far as her cutting her hair, I think there's is something because he specifically says, and she looked like a boy, like there's something there about switching identities somehow. And I think that's like, I, I agree with you. I think probably the immediate reason she cuts her hair is because in the whole last chapter, they, she kept talking about how she couldn't get the smell out of it. And that's like right. the, first, the first line, isn't it? Even I'm like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so there's that, but then, when he calls attention to how different she looks, um, even that combine that, yeah, with what happens at the end when he just doesn't recognize her for a second, I feel like there's something there of Dorcas kind of admitting that she's not who she thinks she is, even if she does, she doesn't remember who she is, but she's kind of doing the thing again of trying to somehow either cuts herself off from the identity she is right now, because she's going to go back and look for her truth. Eventually we know that. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the, the big point. I, yeah, I didn't look this up because it just occurred to me now, but isn't there some tradition of women cutting off all their hair when, or shaving their heads when, as a matter of, of shame or, 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 or mourning or if, for mourning. To, or if they get divorced or something like that. I can't remember. Yeah. For mourning. Definitely. And I'm sure as you're saying that I'm like, Oh, I feel like I know that from various things. I mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. In fact, I'm trying to remember. It seems like there's even crap, a Shakespeare play where one of the characters does that in like a moment of grief, but I can't remember exactly. So 
I have to yeah, look it up and see. Somebody will remember. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> out there or not. And the name Peony originates from the physician Peon, who was a student of the great physician Asclepius. Uh, Peon healed Hades, death himself, using the root of the peony flower. Resurrection is a kind of healing of death, I guess. But as one who healed death, you kind of represent death. And uh, Asclepius yeah. got jealous and tried to kill him, which could be support for the theory that Dorcas was murdered, I guess. But Zeus saved Peon from certain death by turning him into a peony. Which is, I guess, a kind of continued life. But yeah, just like how, how Narcissus, you know, like turns into a flower and all that. Yeah, like, yeah. Is, that, is that really? I don't know. Um, <laughs> he saved him. Yeah. You're now, you're, now you're a flower. How exactly. great for you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, incidentally, uh, Peon is the name of the Autark's master, the honey steward, who returned, apparently, from the dead to tell the old Autark that Severian would become the next Autark oh, and bring the new son. That's a good catch. I hadn't remembered that. Huh. Okay. Cool. Yeah. cool, cool, cool. And uh, Severian goes to work and does paperwork until after lunch, and then he goes to the sergeant of the jailers, the clavigers, and borrows a layman's jalab and goes out hoping to see her. Uh, a jalab or a jalaba or a jalaba. I don't know. It's an Arabic term for a hooded, loose, ankle-length cloak. I, I presume this to be so he won't be easily recognized and cause a stir. Yeah, the when I looked it up, the ones I saw just they it totally looks like a Jedi cloak, which <laughs> is what it what the pictures I saw. So yeah, um, but then Severian says the brown book I carry says there's nothing stranger than to explore a city wholly different from all those one knows, since to do so is to explore a second and unsuspected self. That sounds like something Jorge Luis Borges would say, but I yeah. haven't seen the citation. But yeah, with the, the different self, yeah, that, that seems right. And I mean, I kind of get that. I get how that's right. Because you, when you're, same kind of feeling you get whenever you travel to a foreign country where every little detail about regular life is different and you're just, everything takes effort and you're trying to figure out everything. You just don't, you don't feel like yourself. You just kind of feel anonymous. Somehow. Right. But but yeah, here I like the idea of a second and unsuspected self, like mm -hmm. you get to be a new person in a certain way. So anyway, yeah, but he says, he says, I have found a thing stranger to explore such a city only after one has lived in it for some time without learning anything of it. I did not know where the baths Dorcas had mentioned stood, though I had surmised from talk I had heard in court that they existed. I didn't know where the bazaar where she bought her cloth and cosmetics was located or even if there were more than one. I knew nothing, in short, beyond what I could see from the embrasure and the brief route from the vincula to the Archon's palace. I had perhaps a too ready confidence in my own ability to find my way about in a city so much smaller than Nessus. Even so, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's some self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just a small town. Even so, <laughs> I took the precaution of making certain from time to time as I trod the crooked streets that straggled down the cliff between cave houses excavated from the rock and swallow houses jutting out from it that I could still see the familiar shape of the Bartizan with its barricaded gate and black gonfalon. So the gate that provides entry to what I suppose are the stairs that you take to the Bartizan, which is the outer structure of the Vincula, right? The gate 
has a fortified fence. And a gonfalon is a banner with some type of heraldry symbol on it. To, it's suspended from a cross piece. Local guilds used to all have gonfalons. So I suppose that, you know, that is in this reference. Mm -hmm. uh, this gonfalon hangs over the gate to the Bartizan, which you must enter to reach the Vincula. There you go. A Severian doesn't get lost in this scene, but only because he can keep his eye out for the Bartizan in the distance, which is suspended on a cliff face. In a 1983 interview, Wolf said that because of Severian's perfect memory, he could never get lost. So if Wolf needed him to become lost, he had to devise a good reason for that. He never, however, stipulated what a reason for that might be. Yeah. So, turns out there are a few times when Severian needs to get lost in the story, though, so he does get lost. Yeah. And Severian reminds us that in Nessus, the rich live on the north side of the city where the water is cleaner. The further you go south, the poorer people get. The water is foul because the river is the sewer. But in Thrax, the Aces River runs so fast and the population is much reduced from Nessus. The Severian says that Thrax is a thousand times less dense. But because the swiftness of the water and the smaller population, it doesn't matter if you are further upstream or not. Also, the water is conveyed to the city via aqueducts that funneled water far upstream. So the river was used only for manufacturing or industrial washing. Yeah. So it's not as gross as right, right, Nessus yeah. water is supposed to be. It's just to. naturally cleaner no matter what you do. Yeah. yeah. Which if you're thinking of, you know, Severian taking his dip in the Nessus as a kind of baptism, just it, it was not the cleanest baptismal water <laughs> yeah. in the world, I guess is what he's saying. He was baptized in filthy, filthy yep. water. Yeah. Yeah. So in Thrax, the wealthy live down in the valley next to the river, close to the stores and public buildings. He says, where a brief walk brought them to piers from which they could travel the length of the city in slave road cacks. Right. So it's like living close to the train station mm -hmm. in Manhattan. So the cost of housing decreases as you move up the cliffs. Which, remember, before the common use of the elevator, the least expensive apartments and hotel rooms were always the upper floors because you were going to have to take the stairs to get to them. Mm -hmm. the, the pretty view at the top of the skyscraper or the top of the cliffs of Thrax is detracted when you are expected to hike a 90-degree climb <laughs> to get there. And the people living there have accommodations of, quote, jackals of mud and reed. And you need to use long ladders to get to them. A, a jackal is a hut made of sticks with mud for mortar. They're essentially uh, like adobe. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. It starts buildings, right. to sound like a Pueblo or something. Right, where, exactly. Yeah, you just have all those in there. So, so it may well be that you have nice, fancy mansions down by the river. But yeah, really just, yeah, mud squares. Just, when you right, exactly. Higher. Yeah. And, and we get some foreshadowing here. He says... I was to see something of those miserable hovels, but in this chapter, Severian has only seen the best parts of town by the water. Yep, that'll be important later. But so, mm. there the narrow streets were so thronged with people that I first thought a festival was in progress, or perhaps that the war, which had seemed so remote while I remained in Nessus, but had become progressively more immediate as Dorcas and I journeyed north, was now near enough to fill the city with those who fled before it. 
So Thrax is full of refugees from the front lines of the war. Or it's that's one thing he thinks would be reasonable based mm-hmm. on all of this. Yeah. So and then he goes on. There's a lot of comparison between Thrax and Nessus in this chapter. So Nessus is so extensive that it has, as I have said, five buildings for each living inhabitant. Remember that most of Nessus is vacant buildings in the South. The reference to how extensive it is seems to suggest that this is what he means. But I suppose this could also mean that despite the numerous population of the city, people build and leave for more dwellings than the population can fill. Yep. Yep. And by the way, that one reminder about the war being closer, that's something to keep in mind because there are parts of sword where it feels like he's just wandering in a vague wilderness. But if you remember that where he is, is constantly getting closer and closer and closer to an actual war, that's more realistically kind of what it's like that, that, you know, he could always find something. And then he, he does as actually happens, get pulled straight into a huge conflict and all kinds of stuff, different ways. So it's not just lonely wandering really. So, but he says, In Thrax, that ratio is surely reversed. And on that day, it seemed to me at times that there must have been 50 inhabitants for each roof. Two, Nessus is a cosmopolitan city, so that although one saw many foreigners there, and occasionally even Cacogens come by ship from other worlds, one was always conscious that they were foreigners, far from their homes. Here the streets swarmed with diverse humanity, but they merely reflected the diverse nature of the mountain setting, so that when I saw, for example a man whose hat was made from a bird's pelt with the wings used as ear flaps, or a man in a shaggy coat of kaberu skin, or a man with a tattooed face, I might see a hundred more such tribesmen around the next corner. So there's a lot of diversity in Thrax, but it is because the region itself is diverse, which I suppose is reflected in the eclectic ethnicity itself. Yep, which also starts to make you think that Nessus and the, the Commonwealth those people may just be sort of like the wealthy who right. seem to have settled places, but there are still all these other cultures going around. And that's not something that really, really comes across in the early books. But I think here he really wants that, especially with the autochthons, which may well just be a name that he kind of broadly applies to anyone who doesn't live like the Nessus people. But right, yeah, all, we're going to see rural people or something. Yeah, around the, there may well be lots of groups. And I mean, it's, it's, tempting in some ways to see them. And and he even encourages that with some of the ways he describes them as like, you know, proto Incans or what's left over of the, the native American races from the time. Just he, he suggests little things that are supposed to connect you to that. Um, And it may well be something like that, but it could also be, you know, just whatever kinds of leftovers from whatever societies have been out there. Um, But it does seem like it's really a big mix. Yeah. So a, a kaberu or a kaberu, I don't know, it's an Ethiopian wolf, uh, Canis simensis. It looks a lot like a coyote, and DNA analysis shows that it's not closely related to other African dog species. It's most closely related to European gray wolves or coyotes. Other names for it are the Seminian's fox, the Simian jackal, the Ethiopian jackal, the Abyssinian wolf. Abyssinia is the old European name for Ethiopia. The term Simenian fox or jackal comes from a population being found in the Simenian mountains. And the word Simeon just means north. So the North Mountains, 
this, uh, this particular wolf is highly endangered. There are about 200 adults left in the wild. The reason I'm digging so deep into this casual reference is because first it demonstrates just how hard wolf might have dug for the appropriate animal skin to be found in the mountains in the far <laughs> north of the Commonwealth. And the other is that Kaburu is really a deep cut for a name for this animal. I was only able to find the word on a Polish Wikipedia page, and it seems to be Polish for wolf, but Lexicon Earthus confirms that a Kaburu is an African mountain wolf. And the only instance of it in Polish was a reference to Canis Seminus. So hmm. Canis Seminsis. So I know we have Polish listeners. Maybe they can provide more insight. That's kind of cool. So Severian mentions that you do see cacogens in Nessus from time to time. Mm -hmm. And of course, if it just means people from other planets, um, I don't know, that just seems like a weird name to call call them, for, you know, cacogens. So mm -hmm. I presume all of these are look like you know monsters like in the masks that we're expected that we're used to seeing like they like severian saw at the play he never clarifies yeah so i mean there was a period where i thought cacogen meant any kind of foreigner like aliens or ashians would be cacogens too mm -hmm. so and there there are a couple of uses of it where it's so vague that it could mean that but yeah i don't i think it probably is more like you like your yeah i think so because also i don't think humans can leave the planet yeah Yep, yep, yep. Uh, anyway, I mentioned the eclectic ethnicity of the population. Uh, we quoted from this chapter regarding the eclectics in detail in chapter 29 of The Claw of the Conciliator. However, we do get some additional detail about the eclectics, along with some of city-born Severian's biases about them. So we might as well quote the whole thing again as an introduction. Okay. These men were eclectics, the descendants of settlers from the South who had mixed their blood with that of the squat, dark autochthons adopted certain of their customs and mingled these with still others acquired from the amphitryons farther north and those in some instances of even less known peoples traders and parochial races remember that the amphitryon means opposing all sides which means that they are people unaligned to either the commonwealth or ischia yeah and that goes kind of with what I was saying before about, yeah, who knows? Lots of different groups. Like the name right. autochthons could mean all kinds of different things. So just like, I guess, technically, you know, like the way people used to say Indians actually meant all kinds of different Native American yeah, cultures. Exactly. Yeah. So many of these eclectics favor knives that are curved, or as they're sometimes called bent, having two relatively straight sections with an elbow a little toward the point. This shape is said to make it easier to pierce the heart by stabbing beneath the breastbone. The blades are stiffened with a central rib, are sharpened on both sides, and are kept very sharp. There's no guard, and their halves are commonly a bone. And by the way, just point out, taking some time to really describe some knives here is definitely... <laughs> I mean, we get that with Terminus S, but also right. the passage in Peace, where, you know, young Weir is just so happy with his little pocket knife that he's got. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. Makes you wonder, was that... Was that a very big deal for Wolf when he was a kid? I don't know. Uh -uh. So, but um, okay. One of the keepers of the Bear Tower once told me that there is no animal so dangerous or so savage and unmanageable as the hybrid resulting when a fighting dog mounts a she wolf. We're accustomed to think of the beasts of the forest and mountain as wild, and to think of the men who spring up, as it seems, from their soil as savage. But the truth is that there's a wildness more vicious, as we would know better if we were not so habituated to it in certain domestic animals. 
despite their understanding so much human speech and sometimes even speaking a few words. <laughs> and there's a more profound savagery in men and women whose ancestors have lived in cities and towns since the dawn of humanity. Vodalus, in whose veins flowed the undefiled blood of a thousand exultants, exarchs, ethnarchs, and starosts, was capable of violence unimaginable to the autochthons that stalked the streets of Thrax, naked beneath their Huanaco cloaks. Oh, wow. So Severian says that the Eclectics aren't savage and ruthless because they are half wild, but because they are half civilized. Mm -hmm. But the civilized portion out here is ungoverned by the thousands of boundaries built up into civilization. Incidentally, I think we've defined Exarch and Ethnarch and Staros variously in other places, but and, and Exarch is the highest ranking bishop in the Eastern Orthodox Church or ruler of the province in the Byzantine Empire, and Ethnarch in classical Greece was the governor of a province or a people group. A starost was a Polish nobleman in charge of a castle or of a, of a domain, which is called a starosty. I had forgotten that one. I remembered the other two, but I was, yeah, I couldn't remember if we had mentioned star. Yeah, now I that you sure. say that, I think, we, yeah, I think so. Cool. It sounds like something we would have done. Mm -hmm. uh, the Huanaco cloaks worn by the Atakthans is a cloak of Huanaco skin. A Huanaco or Guanaco is like the Vincunia a wild descendant of the North American camel. There are also llamas and alpacas, which are the domesticated co-descendants. He says, like the dog wolves, which I never saw because they were too vicious to be useful, these eclectics took all that was most cruel and ungovernable from their mixed parentage. As friends or followers, they were sullen, disloyal, and contentious. As enemies, fierce, deceitful, and vindictive. According to Severian's jailers, over half the prisoners at the Vincula are eclectics. Yeah. I just, I like the word eclectic too, it, because it it's probably, it's something like mulatto or half-breed, right? Like it's exactly. sure. kind of what like it is. Just a, a melange of everything. Right. But I, I just like the word eclectic for that because it's just, just eclectic yeah. tastes or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. It, it seems much more polite. To, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Now, Severian moves on to talk about the nature of women and men in this area, which, as we know, is bound to never be cringy at all. Right. So, and and to remember, this is like, you know, Severian's lived here for how long? Yeah, um, a month. A month. A and, month. <laughs> you know, and he's passing, you know, all these grand generalizations about, you know, all these different people that now he knows. So, right. um, But like we said, this whole middle section may in some sense be Severian working really hard to distract himself a little bit. Mm, and yeah. so all this course of thought may really be, like you said, he's not really getting what Dorcas is and, and is going through. He's certainly in all this wandering, not really apparently thinking about it very much. So, right. um, but yeah, so anyway, uh, so we say, I have never encountered men whose language, costume, or customs are foreign without speculating on the nature of the women of their race. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, seven, that's taken, well, even in context, it's messed up, but, but even. That's, it's just, yeah. it's, yeah, the understatement in that is just <laughs> too perfect. Yeah. 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 So, and he, I have never done it. I've never not speculated <laughs> I never, on I don't want you to worry. No. <laughs> I'm going awesome. to leave it discussing the women. Yeah. So Severian starts by exaggerating on how clear he has been on this or any subject. Yeah. There is always a connection 
Since the two are the growths of a single culture, just as the leaves of a tree which one sees, and the fruit which one does not see because it's hidden by the leaves, are the growths of a single organism. But the observer who would venture to predict the appearance and flavor of the fruit from the outline of a few leafy boughs, seen, as it were, from a distance, must know a great deal about leaves and fruit, if he's not to make himself ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> which, yeah, which is a great way to be like, so are you an expert in men and women and Sverin or what? Do you this, know anything about leaves either? Yeah. I mean, the people who like to think that all of Severian's sort of philosophical or, or you know, whatever these are, asides like this are just, are supposed to be read almost as like self-satire or something this passage i think more than any of the other mm -hmm. ones is the oh, yeah. perfect kind of example of that so yeah but um but anyway warlike men may be born of languishing women or they may have sisters nearly as strong as themselves and more resolute and so i walking among crowds composed largely of these eclectics and the townsmen who seemed to me not much different from the citizens of nessus say that their clothing and their manners were somewhat rougher found myself speculating on dark-eyed, dark-skinned women, women with glossy black hair, as thick as the tails of the skewbald mounts of their brothers. <laughs> a skewbald horse has spots or patches of white on a coat of any color other than black. He, he calls them mounts, and we should not assume that they are horses as we think of them. Yeah, and this is also a part here, too, where, I mean, yeah, it's just when he's describing there, you first I see these people who are much like Nessus, and it's so tempting to be like white because then he goes in and talks about the dark eyed, dark skinned women with glossy black hair. You know, it's very much the sort of Tolkien kind of thing where it's like the elves are all pure white and glowing and silver. Uh, yeah. And then they're the swarthy men from the East or whatever. Yeah. So, but anyway, dark eyed, dark skinned women, women with glossy black hair, whose faces I imagined as strong yet delicate women given to ferocious resistance and swift surrender <laughs> women who could be won but not bought if such women exist in this world oh some of this <laughs> oh yeah if such women exist in this yeah. world yeah. Uh, some of this is of course the variant's fantasy of the exotic but he's done worse in his assessments of people i guess so yeah yeah notice though that we don't actually get any anthropological information about men and women in the north when severian says i have never encountered men whose language costume or customs are foreign without speculating on the nature of women in the race he means every time i go someplace new i think about the women mm -hmm. that i'll find there yeah <laughs> but he moves on from the women quickly yeah from their arms i traveled in imagination to the places where they might be found the lonely huts crouched by mountain springs, the hide yurts standing alone in high pastures. Soon I was as intoxicated with the thought of the mountains as I had been once, before Master Palamon had told me the correct location of Thrax, with the idea of the sea. How glorious are they, the immovable idols of earth, carved with unaccountable tools in a time inconceivably ancient, still lifting above the rim of the world grim heads crowned with mitres, tiaras and diadems spangled with snow heads whose eyes are as large as towns figures whose shoulders are wrapped in forests oh so i i did he learn about these mountains that are carved in image of men and rulers in school or i mean is he imagining these after the fact he says he's imagined them so he's described them once or twice before as that and i think the implication is that 
that's just what these mountains are is they yeah. they are just are the statues and i think this is another case where you know he uses the word mountain but he means the giant statues yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah i think yeah. that's probably what's going on and i also remember that because i think the first time i read this i never clicked to me that every mountain in the andes or whatever these are here was carved into a mountain and then i remember reading it the second time and going oh wait every single mountain i think the first time i had just imagined it is just typhon um yeah but there are parts there's even a part yeah it's still in beginning a shadow somewhere where he mentions that about yeah a, a mountain range of statues so yeah. i think yeah i think it really is something that's taken for granted yeah to him they are these idols to him a mountain is an idol of earth or one of yeah. these little yeah yeah but but of course there's also the other obvious explanation that thecla has seen these things mm -hmm. as we'll yeah. see in a minute that is true that is true thus disguised in the dull jalab of a townsman i elbowed my way down streets packed with humanity and reeking with the odors of orger and cookery with my imagination filled with visions of hanging stone and crystal streams like carcanets. Odors of ordure. Uh, ordure is manure. Mm -hmm. uh, crystal streams like carcanets. A carcanet is a bejeweled necklace, collar, or headband. Yeah, which is a cool way to describe the giant, how they carve the mountains is yeah. like mm -hmm. being those things. Yeah. So as his eyes are filled with humanity's filth, in the city of Thrax, his head is filled with glorious visions. <laughs> and now he realizes that Thecla must have been to Thrax as well, but as a small child. Yeah. Thecla must, I think, have been taken at least into the foothills of these heights, no doubt to escape the heat of some particularly torrid summer. For many of the scenes that rose in my mind, as it seemed of their own accord, were noticeably childlike. I saw rock-loving plants whose virginal flowers I beheld with an immediacy of vision no adult achieves without kneeling. Abysses that seemed not only frightening but shocking, as though their existence were an affront to the laws of nature. Peaks so high they appeared to be literally without summit, as though the whole world had been falling forever from some unimaginable heaven, which yet retained its hold on these mountains. And now he has walked from his room in the Bartizan to the Aces Castle. He says this means having walked the entire length of the city, which means that the Bartizan, I guess, is as far away from the castle as it can be and still in the proper urbanized city along the river. Maybe That's what it seems like, yeah. Unless he means like from from side of the of the river to the other side of the river. I don't know. Yeah, could be, could be. It's yeah, it's weird. And that one I'm not exactly sure. He says, quote, I made my identity known to the postern guards there and was permitted to enter and climb to the top of the donjon. A uh, postern guard is the guard at the back entrance of the castle. Uh, the donjon is the castle keep, the fortified tower in the center of the castle. It is intended as the last refuge during an attack. The term donjon in reference to these keeps implies it is also the offices and residences of the highest authority. It was also used as a place of confinement in the castle, which is how the term donjon morphed into dungeon in English. Cool. So Severian has gone from climbing the Madison Tower three and a half months ago to climbing the tower keep in Thrax. And this volume will end with Severian at Baldander's Keep 
as he will note at the end that he has traveled from tower to tower. <laughs> what other middle book in a series is talking about two towers? I can't remember. I can't but, remember. Um, yeah. um, so, but yeah, this, like you said, this was, this was a Thecla memory he had. So, um, so he says, when I had gone to the top of the Madachin tower to make my farewell to the only place I had known, I'd stood at one of the loftiest points of the Citadel, which was itself poised atop one of the highest elevations in the whole area of Nessus. The city had been spread before me to the limits of vision, with guile traced across it like a green slime of a slug across a map. Even the wall of Nessus had been visible on the horizon at some points, and nowhere was I beneath the shadow of a summit much superior, that is, higher in elevation, to my own. Here the impression was far different. I bestrode the Asus, the river, which leapt toward me down a succession of rocky steps, each twice or three times the height of a tall tree. Beaten to a foaming whiteness that glittered in the sunlight, it disappeared beneath me and reappeared as a ribbon of silver racing through a city as neatly contained in its declivity as one of those toy villages in a box that I recalled receiving on a birthday. And, and this was Thecla's memory. Yeah, so the I here means, yeah, Thecla. So. Yet I stood, as it were, at the bottom of a bowl. On every side, the walls of stone ascended, so that to look at any one of them was to believe, for a moment at least, that gravity had been twisted until it stood at right angles to its proper self by some sorcerer's manipulation with imaginary numbers. And the height I saw was properly the level surface of the world. For a watch or more, I think, I stared up at those walls and traced the spidery lines of the waterfalls that dashed down them in thunder and clean romance to join the Asus and watch the clouds trapped among them that seemed to press softly against their unyielding sides like sheep bewildered and dismayed among pens of stone. So the citadel was built at the highest location overlooking the whole region. But here, the castle of Thrax is dwarfed and but one small element in the geography around it. So the cliffs going up above it higher than the, than the, the castle keep itself. And Severian is moved to a much wider world where he cannot delude himself, as he did growing up, that he is at the most important place <laughs> in it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Then I grew weary at last of the magnificence of the mountains and my mountain dreams, or rather not weary, but dizzied by them until my head reeled with vertigo. And I seemed to see those merciless heights even when I closed my eyes and felt that in my dreams that night and for many nights, I would fall from their precipices or cling with bloody fingers to their hopeless walls. So he looks back at the Bartizan where he lives now, a very modest little cube cemented to a cliff that was hardly more than a ripple among the incalculable waves of stone around it, as he says. Yeah. He says, I plotted the courses of the principal streets, seeking, as in a game, to sober myself from my long gazing on the mountains, to identify those I'd walked in reaching the castle, and to observe from this new perspective the buildings and market squares I'd seen on the way. By eye, I looted the bazaars. I, I like that way of referring to looking down on the marketplace from above. By eye, I looted the bazaars. <laughs> yeah, so finding that there were two, one on either side of the river, and I marked afresh the familiar landmarks I'd learned to know from the embrasure of the vincula, the harena. Uh, that, that is, again, the are arena or stadium. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So the harena, the pantheon, then the archon's palace. Then when everything I had seen from the ground had been confirmed from my new vantage point, and I felt I understood the spatial relationship of the place at which I stood 
to what I had known earlier of the plan of the city, I began to explore the lesser streets, peering along the twisted paths that climbed the upper cliffs and probing narrow alleys that often seemed no more than mere bands of darkness between buildings. In seeking them out, my gaze came at last to the margins of the river again, and I began to study the landings there, and the storehouses, and even the pyramids of barrels and boxes and bales that waited there to be carried aboard some vessel. Now the water no longer foamed, save when it was obstructed by the piers. Its color was nearly indigo, and like the indigo shadows seen at evening on a snowy day, it seemed to slip silently along, sinuous and freezing. But the motion of the hurrying cakes and the laden feluccas, which I don't know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> well, cakes, as we noted in Shadow of the Torturer, are small wooden sailboats okay. used for trading, which are painted with bright colors. A felucca is a small sailboat with one or two sails. It's Egyptian, though. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So, but the motion of the hurrying cakes and the laden feluccas showed how much turbulence lay concealed beneath that smooth surface. For the larger craft swung their long bowsprits like fencers, and both yawed crabwise at times when, while their oars threshed the racing eddies. So even though Severian can't see the turbulence of the river, he can deduce it from the rocking around of the boats on it, which is a pretty good me metaphor for this narrative. Yep, I like that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Now, though, from his vantage, he detects Dorcas uncharacteristically at the water's edge. Yeah, so the last bit. When I had exhausted all that lay farther downstream, I leaned from the parapet to observe the closest reach of the river and a wharf that was no more than a hundred strides from the postern gate. Looking down at the stevedores there who toiled to unburden one of the narrow river boats, I saw near them, unmoving, a tiny figure with bright hair. At first I thought her a child because she seemed so small beside the burly, nearly naked laborers, but it was Dorcas sitting at the very edge of the water with her face in her hands. Uh, Dorcas is in the middle of an unpleasant revelation, which as rereaders, you all know about already. So I think so very little of it happens. I think I just read almost the whole chapter to you too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, what but, do you, but that's, that's a, oh, there's yeah, no sense there's... breaking down a chapter or summarizing something that Wolf has already done so well. Yeah. And it really is a lot about, yeah, him kind of listing off things and yeah, a, a one long big distraction from Thecla. I mean, it is good too. It's beginning of a new book, right? And thinking of how it was initially published, you got to remind people of some stuff. So this is a good way to talk about Nessus, remind you of the old city, remind you now where he is, you know, or where he is at this point and kind of get you caught up. So it makes sense you know, especially as right. they were initially published to do something like that. So just like we get a section like that in um, Claw as well, that kind of recaps a lot of things. So right. this is, it's not really recap of the plot, but it's recap of the setting, I guess we have. But it's interesting that Severian spends so much time describing this city that he is going to leave without really mm -hmm. spending any much, much more time there at all. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we have 12 chapters to go here, Craig, but I don't think we have what? another day <laughs> to be in Thrax. Yeah. And that kind of fits, right? Because there's all this stuff here. Well, just like in, in shadow, he spends all that time on Nessus and then it's like gone. And we're, you know, right after yeah. the first third, we're out of there. Same kind of thing here where really the fun of the books is the not knowing. And so if we were going to mm -hmm. spend a ton of time in a place that we knew already, it's not, it's not like that. So there is kind of a fun 
I don't know, a, a sort of bit of a tease here that this place mm -hmm. is going to be really important. And then, yeah, we're getting ready. Let me lay it all out for you. So you yeah. understand all of the, the, you know, how it's going to work. I, I don't know. Maybe it helps us understand how he escapes. Yeah. But it also does give you a sense of that we're now in slightly less civilized area because he goes through all the stuff with the autochthons and people who I don't really understand. Like there, anytime he's making like those vast generalizations about people mm -hmm. that definitely seems like, okay, he's just now he's totally in a foreign land. So he's just <laughs> yeah. imagining stuff and he doesn't know what's going on. Um, yeah. And that's pretty much true. What's going to happen here. Well, um, we certainly hope you're going to reach out to us with your ideas and other comments, your thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you will bring them to us on the Facebook group, subreddit, Twitter, email, Patreon site, anything, Instagram. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, droning on about a city which we are not going to hang around in, May the Moira favor you. Yes, indeed. I don't have anything witty to say after that. <laughs>
Um, here I can like. Let me if try. I, if I turn my gain up, I'm sure it's going to start sounding a little yeah, bit more like I'm. Yeah, there yeah, you your gain but, is fine. Don't worry about. Don't, don't, don't worry. No idea. What did? Yeah, do they have a Spanish ice cream? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't. Off the top of my head, I can't think of like a specific cold treat unless I'm dumb. But um, think for getting something obvious. But yeah. Uh, okay. Well, good. That was good. Good, well, good, good. All right. So perhaps that the war, which it seems so remote, well, while it, which it seems so remote, which it seems so remote, <laughs> which it seems so remote while I remain. How's, how's sports going? Uh, there's a lot of it. In fact, Sam, like I, or I told you, yeah, Sam had a game against University of Chicago. So that was probably the only local game he'll ever have because everything else is like, wow. you know, Southern California. Um, so cool. Um, yeah, and it was fun. It's like apparently there were pretty sure there were actually more of the parents for Sam's team there than there were of the U Chicago kids. <laughs> That's rough. But it's fun. Sam would come out and he's punting and doing kickoffs. So, you know, it'd be punt time, which normally is not good for the offense, but the punter would come out and they'd be Sam Brewer prepares to punt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all there'd be like 30 of us going, yeah. <laughs> like never before has a punter been so appreciated so popular oh it's got quite a following i may have told you this before but just because i knew how to i understood the plays and so i would you know they call the play and then it was basically my job to make sure the two guards and the tackles knew mm. what they were supposed to do um and that and then i'd pretty much just like you know, I didn't really block particularly well or something. I think they figured uh-huh. as long as I could just get in somebody's way, that's good enough. <laughs> so, so that's pretty much all I did. And I get just a be lot. an obstacle. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't play defense very much, um, but I still remember the only tackle I got was actually, I think it was a penalty because there was this kid who one of our guys had like got him halfway down where he was mm-hmm. like on one knee, as I recall. Um, and I was already going like running at him full force. So I couldn't really stop, but I, I like fell forward on him and my shoulder pads went right on his helmet and the kid didn't get up. Oh, (laughs) we were like, and I was like, holy crap. So I think I got a penalty and you know, he, he was fine in the long run, but, but it was that feeling of, I've never gotten a tackle before in time (laughs) and. And we'd, we'd have to like do shotgun plays and I'd throw it over the quarterback's head. So yeah, I was not, uh, I was not very good, <laughs> but that's okay. I didn't like it anyway. I didn't like the games. I, I still remember even back then being like, you know, when the coaches just yell at me, that doesn't motivate me <laughs> and it doesn't really make me want to do better. Um, right. And I'm already trying. So I don't, really i just this sucks <laughs> I, just, I, I quit Enough of this. I, everyone well i don't know my uh, my coaches just basically gave up on me early so <laughs> but anyway i forget what i was talking about i was just old man complaining about kids it was all i was doing there. but um <laughs> but it's fun so yeah but i can't keep up with all of it like just there's too many so i feel bad yeah. on there but but especially this time of year there's just no way so all right well all right, let's hit go. Oh, I I did go before already. Okay, all right. All right. Awesome.